In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray, O God, who does enlighten the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Granted by the gift of the same Spirit, we be always truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ, our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Holy Mother of God, Holy Mother of God, Holy Mother of God. In the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, when everyone is sitting comfortably, then we can begin our story, dear children. <laughs> I'm sure you're used to saying that, are you? Well, last night we considered the groundwork of all of our considerations during this week, which in fact is the whole basis of the foundations on which we are to build our entire lives. The destiny which God made for man before the fall, the catastrophic fall, and then the curse or the punishment which God gave to mankind. And isn't it fascinating, as we said, that essentially, essentially, the blessing and the curse are the same. The difference is that the blessing the blessings of the blessing, if you like, if I may say that, the blessings of the blessing would have been accomplished with total ease and joy effortlessly. Now, the punishment is that God, because he is good and just and merciful, and because, of course, God never changes his mind like we do, God's gifts are without repentance. He still wants us to have the same rewards, but now it's at a price because of our infidelity, because of all the consequences of original sin. And so during these, uh, during these next conferences, we'll continue to consider our vocation, which, our vocation which is in fact to achieve, to gain these blessings, a, uh, and also to, a, um, to consider the crosses and the trials which come with this pursuit. After all that, we considered this rather romantic little uh, consideration of the, the first meeting between Adam and Eve and that the impulsion of love which God has put into the hearts of each and every one of us, whereby he wills, as we said, strangely enough, he wills for the majority of mankind to, in marriage, but not just for those in marriage, really for the majority of mankind, he wills to be found 
in the persons of other human beings. And that therefore he wills that we should find him in others. And not to try to seek a personal union with him alone, which would flatter our own ego and our own self-love. But God wants to keep us continually down to earth by the constant association and relationship with other people. And so that's why he's given us this yearning to demonstrate our love in and with other people. And that's why, as he said at the very end of time, that he will judge us, not even according, well, he will judge us according to our religious practice and our piety and all that kind of thing. But the example that he gives will be whether how we have been in our relationship with other people. And this is the profound mystery of humanity the, and, and the profound reality of humanity and, of course, the great uh, consequence of marriage, which is the sacrament of marriage, is the restoration on earth of the original plan which had gone wrong. So we've got to we see in this movement of romantic love, this, this intuitive attachment to another human being, like to ourselves, a reproduction of that first act of creation of God when he, when he not only made man, Adam, alone and declared that it was not good for him to be alone and that his perfection was in fact, therefore, if it wasn't good for him to be alone, it means his perfection was to be found in union with another and that Eve is drawn from his side and that she is drawn as his helper and his helper on the way to union with God. You mustn't think that the, the, the Eve was sent to be sort of a, a cook and a, and a housekeeper, that, he was, that she was sent to be, that's part of the deal, but she was sent to draw him to God. And so we consider the, the sublimity of their first meeting and how, although the superficial Aspects, the emotional aspects of that may go through the crucible of suffering, marriage being that most intimate union, that sort of nakedness of seeing each other <laughs> intimately in the raw, not just in body but in spirit, and therefore seeing not only the best but also all the worst of each other, that seeing us as we really are and yet accepting each other, not, not approving of each other, <laughs> there's a difference between acceptation and approval, but accepting each other and loving each other what's and all becomes really and truly, in a deeper sense, in a more profound sense, a reflection of God's love, because that's how he loves sinners. He loves us. He certainly disapproves of the sinfulness in us, but he accepts us in the sense that he's giving us time, constantly time, to improve. So that ultimately, once we go through that crucible of suffering, of, 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 a, of not having our comfortable little life, 
as Adam had in the Garden of Eden, all on his own without any contradiction, that we come into a profounder union, a more profounder, deeper union, which is something as great, greater than our initial first love. So that really, you know, in a sense, that it's true that the, that the celebration of the diamond wedding is in fact a more beautiful, it should be, a more beautiful and a more touching occasion than the actual wedding day. Now, there's another story about another version of the meeting with Adam and Eve, which you may appreciate. After God made Eve, and we told in the Holy Bible that God brought Eve to Adam and gave her to him. And after they got to know each other for a little bit, God came back and he said to Adam, well, what do you think about Eve then? And he went, wow, she's absolutely fantastic. She's really gorgeous. She really looks great. She's so exquisitely beautiful. She's really absolutely, well, just marvelous. Um, uh, except, uh, and God goes, uh, except what? Well, excuse me, God, I hope you don't mind me actually sort of saying this, but why did you make her so foolish? Why is she so stupid? And God said, Ah, ah. That's so she'll be capable of loving you. <laughs> and is it not so? <laughs> is it not absolutely exact? So that is a great vocation, I think, of women, is a bit obviously of men. But uh, women, particularly, have been made. The very fact that the, the, the woman was made for Adam as a helper, that woman was made, for, and we'll discuss this notion of being a helper later on, that woman is made for man in a, a very obvious sense. I think that we can really say, truly say that woman has been made to love, in, not just in a profound sense, because every human being, every man as well as woman has been made to love, but the woman has been made to love in a more demonstrative sense. That it's more in keeping with the perfection of womanhood to demonstrate, exteriorly demonstrate the inner movements of the heart. And if he, somebody says in this book, uh, Motherhood and Family, says this, it can be stated dogmatically that the key to any woman's character to her happiness or unhappiness, lies in discovering whom she loves. I'm not a woman. You have to decide whether this is true or not. Whereas a man, although he shares ultimately the same destiny, is frequently caught loving a yacht, a car, or a corporation. In respect to a woman's love, 
she will be happy if they are rightly ordered and duly reciprocated. Miserable otherwise. Rightly ordered means that God will get her first love and that all her other loves will be somehow in Christ. All love is part of, all true love is part of God's love. The other movements of the sentiments and of the emotions and of the heart, which are not in conformity with God's plan, cannot be part of his love. And therefore can only be an expression of love, certainly, but of our own self-love, of our own egoism. And therefore, I think that we can truly say that motherhood, being the fruitful a uh, state of love being the ultimate demonstration of the union of flesh and blood, the fruitful union of flesh and blood, which becomes incarnate. The, the, The love of husband and wife becomes incarnate in another human being, in a child, is the perfection of womanhood and the perfection of and by womanhood I mean all women, the, the perfection of their very being and their, their very essence. As we, were, as, as, we are so, as we are told, that the curse becomes a blessing. I will multitude thy conceptions, thou shalt bring forth children. Just like the perfection of a man's role is to work and to work in the sweat of his brow, why work in the sweat of his brow? Not for himself but for the care of his children and, and of his wife and his dependents. It's of the very necessity of a man to be productive. When God, remember we were told in the Garden of Eden that God gave the Garden of Eden to man even before the fall to live a useful, creative life. Therefore, it's of the very essence of the perfection of a man to work. That's why a man who does not work, I mean mean a man who deliberately chooses not to work, who is an idler, is in no sense otherwise a man. That one thing that that he does not achieve, a creative activity, be it intellectual or physical, any other, almost any other thing about him is is of no consequence to that. So be careful if you've not married a man yet, never marry an idler. Because <laughs> you'll pay for it. <laughs> There's no question about it. And likewise with women, so we can say that, therefore that all men are called to be fathers in the sense that they are all called to be a reflection of the creative energy of God. And therefore likewise, I think all, even if they're not actually physical fathers, here am I saying this, of course I'm not a physical father myself, but my life is meant to be so creative, I don't know how creative it is, only God will judge that, and, and life-giving in a spiritual sense, that that's why we call the priest the father, the father, father black, father paping, whatever. But in a, in a, and also in a similar sense, that every woman is to have a creative love for mankind. That she is to play the role of the mother, even if for reasons which are beyond her, that she cannot actually be a mother, 
whether she just happens to be infertile or she's, uh, she's not in a married state at all, that she, to find her full fulfillment, she must live a life of love and of giving and sacrifice of self to others. For example, the sisters in the religious life, it's a very similar thing. A, uh, they're, funny, they're called sisters because they're sisters of each other, and I suppose they're sisters of us, but it would be actually really more accurate to call them, and of course some of them are called mothers. They're meant to be mothers in the sense that they are to dispense a maternal love and creativity to mankind. If they don't, then if they deliberately choose not to, then we have a life which is in fact sterile. And nowadays, of course, it's the sterile life which is so often the glorified life. Here's a, here's a, this, this, this book's from the 1950s, so it's a little bit out of date, but human nature being all that it is, here's a little passage about career girls. Career girls in the sense of women who have chosen to pursue not motherhood as their essential career, but the workplace, as being their driving force. It can be said categorically of the career, that the career girl cannot be happy. That is, as a career girl, she may accidentally be fulfilled because her career is secondary to the support of an aged mother or a brother studying for the priesthood or because she only works for a little while and finds it exciting. You've only got to ask one question to see why. Who does a career girl love? As a woman, she must love somebody wholly. Wholly, totally. Most career girls try to go against their nature. They pretend that they can make themselves like men. Impersonal, objective, happy in the pursuit of things. In the pursuit of things. If they have love affairs, if they do have love affairs, they try to make them seem casual. Isn't that not only true? They try to make them seem casual as though their hearts were not involved. The more glittering a woman's career in the eyes of the world, the more apt the woman herself is to be distorted, unhappy, and neurotic. Look at these film stars who commit suicide, these glamour girls and all that kind of thing, because their glamorous life is an empty life. Or, listen to this, there are a multitude of career girls who love their bosses. Knowingly or unknowingly, morally or immorally, with home-breaking effects or not. It is not in a woman to give her total service and dedication to the Amalgamated Pickle Company or the National Horseshoes Incorporated without having a personal attachment Involved. Business tends to exploit this fact because it is to the interest of the firm to have devoted workers. 
And if a room full of girls is going to be asked to work late at night, night after night, it's useful to have a handsome personnel manager. The situation is especially acute in the case of secretaries, so aptly named office wives. Night after night, from coast to coast, important Mr. Jones leaves the office early for golf and then cocktails and dinner, while Mary Jane Smith works on to eight o'clock at night cleaning up the mail. Often enough, she doesn't know why she does it. And most often, too, Mr. Jones is obtuse enough not to accept the sacrifice without realizing its disorienting effects on Mary Jane's life. The only way for a determined career girl, a determined career girl, I'm not saying everybody who works, I'm speaking about people who have given their life to a career. The only way for a determined career girl to escape from the emotional disorders which beset her is for her to give all her love. She's got to give all her love, to give all her love to someone whose interests are identical with her own. She must give all her love to someone whose interests are identical with her own. That is herself. Needless to say, self-love is to the self's ultimate destruction. But it seemingly frees people from being hurt by others. Because the person you love always has the power to hurt you. So, a career woman frees herself by loving only herself. And thus, she becomes a ruthless creature who terrifies all around her. A calloused male seeking money or power is warm and human by comparison. Is that not true? I mean, I think it is true in my own experience, but I don't know what you think about it yourself. It really means that essentially, that if we refuse, and, and, and the, whole, the whole modern world now being orientated to uh, an end which is contrary to what God wills, has turned everything around. It's, 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 it's the hallmark of Satan to make the good seem bad and the bad seem good. By means of careful propaganda, it's possible to make the masses believe, and they now believe, that heaven is hell and hell is heaven. That's not that just absolutely exact. And therefore, we've got to seek, we've got to, we've got to put ourselves really and truly on the spot now. And is it the case that we believe that the words of Genesis, that the word of Almighty God, is true? That there is, in fact, a fundamental difference between men and women, a fundamental interdependence between men and women, that men and women have, make no sense alone. A man's world without women is senseless and would be, in fact, a version of hell. And a woman's world without men would be maybe a bigger version of hell. <laughs> and why? Why? In fact, and, and, in fact, that often is the case. I mean, I remember somebody, a woman, a woman, not, not a man, who was a social worker, and she used to visit prisons. She visited men's prisons, and she visited women's prisons. And she said that in the men's prison, it was 
a constant party time because men are very gregarious. And in the women's prison, it was endless hell. <laughs> and it's true. Because, and, it's, and, and, it, and it cannot be otherwise since women have not been made for each other. I mean, men haven't been made for each other either. But men have got a more independent personality which is not, notice, which is not, does not mean that they are superior to women. It's merely one of their attributes which is not necessarily superior to the opposite. This is where it gets wrong. This is where, this is where the feminists get things wrong. The feminists have got the idea that to prove the equality of women, that they must be like men, that they must be able to do all the things that men do and compete with men on the same terms and on the same level as men. But that's completely senseless because what it means is if you think about it that women who want to be like men and do manly things on the same terms and equal to men are tacitly themselves saying that men are superior to women and that women should be trying to catch up with the superiority of men it's an actual it's, 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 it's ludicrous completely mad but there it is. But because men generally have got this more independent sort of uh, or superficially superficial independence, it's possible to be deceived into thinking that somehow or other they have happier or more fulfilled lives. When, of course, it's truly not the case. So... The happiness of men depends completely on women and likewise the happiness of women depends upon men. And the ultimate happiness of men and women consists in the complete surrender of each to the other. As we were saying earlier, that in the, in the book of Genesis, we are told that Adam and Eve were naked before the fall and that they were not ashamed. And of course, the superficial interpretation of that, accurate but superficial, is the fact that since sin hadn't come into the world, that they didn't have impure thoughts, so it was all right for them to see each other naked. But that really doesn't make much sense because, uh, because in any event, even after the fall... Adam and Eve were married. Adam and Eve wasn't a man and woman. Adam and Eve were married, and so even after the fall, there was nothing whatsoever immoral in them being naked. So it's very striking, it's very striking that the first consequence that we read about after the fall, after they committed sin, was that they perceived that they were naked. And remember that God knew I mean, God knew anyway, but God was kind of, God was kind of pretending to him that he didn't know that they'd committed the sin. And remember, they said, Adam, come on, Adam, where are you? Well, I can't see you. And Adam says, well, I can't come out because I'm naked. And remember, God said to him, how do you know that you're naked? It can only mean that you've committed sin. Now, 
And the immediate consequences of their nakedness was that they covered, they covered themselves. And that, I think, has got a profound significance. They started, after sin, to hide themselves from each other. Now, that's, this actually has got nothing to do with hiding their bodies from each other. That is a symbol that they were now in a state of alienation from each other. As they had alienated themselves from God, they had therefore alienated themselves from each other. And there were now barriers between them. That the complete union of love between God and man, husband, wife, and God, was ruptured and broken. And that's what, that's what this means. And it's got a very, very profound meaning. And that therefore, in a certain sense, that they, after the fall, and even the union, even the most intimate union that exists on earth between men and women, which is marriage, even that will have its problems. Even that will have its differences. Even that will have its alienations. That although we will be constantly yearning and longing for that original nakedness, that original openness and complete, um, the complete uh, acceptation and, uh, and, and surrender and revelation of it to each other, there will always be, as long, man, as long as mankind has fallen, there will always be this self-seeking, this reserve, this residual, this residual self-love, which will be an obstacle. And, 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 and that, the, that the, the perfect marriage will be a constant seeking to break down the essential egotism and self-love which is the curse of all mankind. Not just the, um, I mean, obviously, uh, all of mankind. The, the, the root of all of our problems is our pride. All sin comes from pride. All things come from our self-centeredness. Everything comes from making us the center of the world. That's what comes from Satan saying to Eve, eat the fruit of the tree and you will become like God. Only God is sufficient to himself. You'll become like God and our temptation is always to make ourselves like God. And because we are not God, to seek to be like God, to seek to be completely, to completely independent, dominant, in control, in charge, all the time, is in us an imperfection. In God it's a perfection, but in us it's an imperfection. And that's why when God made, and even before the fall, that's why when God made Adam and placed him as the master, the complete dominant master of all creation, with every possibility for worldly happiness, that God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone. And it was necessary for somebody else to be with him, even in the state of innocence, to be his companion and his helper. He even then needed a helper in the state of innocence in his union with God because it's not good for man to be totally self-centered. All the more so, therefore, all the more so in the state of the fall. Now, another big problem to modern women is, we'll, we'll reserve the question of children 
until the next conference. But of course, just to uh, these awful words, thou shalt be under thy husband's power and he shall have dominion over thee. Now, that sounds pretty raw, doesn't it? And it sounds a bit much. Especially when it doesn't actually say the same thing to the man. But if you look, actually, if you look at Adam's curse, there's an element also where Adam is not absolutely and totally independent in his role. To Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, I mustn't forget to speak about that, thou cursed is the earth in thy work, with labor and toil shalt thou eat therefore all the days of thy life. Now if you look on earlier on, God said to Adam in the state of innocence, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed upon the earth and all the trees that have in themselves seed of their own kind to be your meat. Adam would have lived working as a recreation. Now, the world which had been put under his dominion has revolted against him so that the forces and the power of nature are stronger than mankind in the sense that life is a constant, now endless struggle, and has the, the, the story of the human race has been an endless struggle against the forces of nature which now are dominant over mankind. Even to the extent that now, with all of our great, uh, we imagine we're in total control, we're all terrified of global warming. Never mind whether it's true or false. The fact is that mankind is terrified of the powers and the force of nature. Hmm? So that that which God had given dominion to Adam over, now has dominion over him. He's subject to the blind forces of nature. And also now that Eve has been given, it doesn't say that these forces have dominion over him and that his whole life's work will be a constant struggle against these forces, even if it's just going to the office every day in a more sophisticated uh, life that we have now, but it's all part of the struggle for mankind's dominance over the blind, apparent blind forces of nature to, to earn a living. So that also now, he says to Eve, and he says, and he says to Eve in relation to Adam that he shall have dominion over her. Because woman has been made not for the general not to cope with the blind general forces of nature, but woman has been made to love individual persons. And coming with love and, and the love of individuals in the fallen state of the world now comes very often agony, hurt, and grief. Yeah. You always hurt the one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. It's a... <laughs> It's commonplace in all of our lives. It's commonplace, in, and especially in the lives of people who are married, obviously, because, again, the more that you love somebody, or the more, the more you hurt them. And the more they hurt, 
because they love you in return. Love is a, an empowering thing, but it also creates a great vulnerability in us. And so the dominion to which Eve is subjected is something which is particular to her role and to her vocation. And so we mustn't think, I think it's wrong to think, that God somehow has chosen women out to be dominated, whereas men have not been chosen to be dominated and are free. That's completely false. Also remember, as we said earlier, it's important to keep this part aspect in mind, that although we tend to think in worldly terms and in human terms of domination in its bad sense, or dominion in its more sort of general sense, as something bad, it's not necessarily bad. And in fact, it's an absolute necessity of life. It's a necessity of ordered human life. Someone has got to be in charge. And that being in charge is not necessarily any kind of privilege. Uneasy is the head that wears the crown. All authority of whatever kind in the fallen state of the world is a crown of thorns. So that brings also with it heavy responsibilities. In many respects, it's much easier to be a subject than to be the king. Also, the union between, as we said earlier, the union between Adam and Eve is not a relationship of servitude. Anyway, Eve was never intended to be, was never created to be Adam's slave or servant. She was created to be his helper, if you like, you could even use the modern term partner, in seeking their mutual fulfillment. And so, The role of woman is not to be seen as being a slave or a servant. It's to be seen in this particular relationship to that who is nearest and dearest to her. And it does not mean either that in no sense is a husband subject to his wife. Because he is, also. If you you actually look at the epistle to the Ephesians, St. Paul says something similar about this. St. Paul says, be subject one to another in the fear of Christ. And then he goes on to quote from Genesis, let women be subject to their husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now nobody thinks of Christ as being the tyrant of the church, the dictator of the church. So, no more should any husband be the dictator of his wife. Therefore, the church is subject to Christ, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands. It's not a relationship of domination, of of, of a uh, servile subjugation to uh, a master of slaves. It is the surrender which is necessary in every loving relationship. Because every loving relationship involves self-surrender. It necessarily involves 
the surrender of our own will to the will of the beloved. It does not mean the unilateral surrender of husbands, of wives to husbands, or 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 or, 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 or even the reverse. The um, it's impo- I think it's important to insist upon these points because it's only by being a perfect husband or a perfect wife that you're going to be a perfect father or a perfect mother. What, being a parent is a consequence of being a spouse. If your marriage is in order, it almost effortlessly must be that your children are, are in order. But if your marriage is not in order, then there will be endless problems with your children. It's just one thing follows another. So in order to be... Yeah, yeah, the, best, the best thing, as I said in the previous conference, the best thing that a man can do for his children is to love his wife. And the best thing that a mother can do for her children is to love her husband. Alas, of course, we've got to confess that love is a two-way thing. It's a two-way street. And that unless we, we are responsible and we have complete dominion over our own lives and how we live our lives, but we do not have that same power over our spouse. So we cannot, of ourselves alone, create this perfect harmony. But if there, if there is a disharmony in our marriages, we must be able to look at our own hearts and see that we have really done all in our power to see that the responsibility is not ours. And not, not even in the spirit, not in, not in the spirit of condemnation, not in the spirit of saying, it's all his fault. Because <laughs> that's not going to help matters either. But that when we look at ourselves, we see that we have done all that it is possible to do. That's really what it means. That when we accept, we accept our spouse for, for worse as well as for better. In sickness as in health. In fact, taking the, taking the bad with the, with the good. And marriage, of course, does hone that. It, 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 brings, it brings us out. It brings that out to you marvelously. It's really necessary to see that our vocation to be married is like the vocation to the religious life. That it requires the surrender of ourselves. Here's a, here's a beautiful consideration, I think. One of the commonest illusions about marriage is that it is meant to be a sanctuary, a place of familiarity and protectedness amidst the alien harshness of the world, a place in which the rigors of change and challenge and uncertainty are expected to be minimized, the shocks of life abated. Home is a place to put up one's feet to rest, to be free from struggle. And to a large extent, all of this is true. God wants us to enjoy security. Unfortunately, we have a way of equating security with complacency. A man's home is his castle, goes the saying. And in practice, this is taken to mean that a man is allowed and even encouraged to develop into any sort of despot or devil he likes within the cosy confines and cordoned lawlessness of his own family. 
After all, aren't his loved ones those who understand and accept him? And so, marriage becomes a form of institutionalized complacency, a hothouse of mutually nourished neurosis. Love is even construed to be a sort of carte blanche approval for all kinds of selfishness and evil, a dispensation giving two people special license to sin against each other. The fact of the matter is that holy matrimony, like other holy relationships, was never intended as a comfort station for lazy people. On the contrary, it is a systematic program of deliberate and thoroughgoing self-sacrifice. A man's home is not so much his castle as much as his monastery. I don't think about it like that. It's interesting. Not so much his castle as his monastery. And if he happens, if he happens, lucky him, if he happens to be treated as a king there, then it's only that he might better be enabled to become a servant. For marriage is intended to be an environment in which he will be lovingly, yet persistently confronted with the plainest and ugliest evidence of his sinfulness and thus encouraged on a daily basis to repent and to change. Marriage is really a drastic course of action which, as much as any monastic commitment, dedicates the votary to a life of vigorous self-denial, to a disciplined path of renunciation and of retreat from the world. It is a radical step And it is not intended for anyone who is not prepared, even eager, to surrender his own will and to be wholeheartedly submissive to the will of another. Is that not the case? For there is no way to surrender the will except by surrendering to another will. That's worth repeating. There is no way of surrendering the will except by surrender to another will. Otherwise, it's just a whole load of claptrap, rubbish. And there's no way to attack the root of selfishness except by discipline and subduing that determined monster of self-aggrandisement that is known as the human will. What about this is why matrimony may correctly be termed like holy orders, a monastery, a special category, in fact, of the religious life. It's a, mono, it's an, a monasticism in which the vow and discipline of chastity becomes the vow and discipline of fidelity, in which the vow of poverty is translated into an unqualified sharing of the totality of one's life and possessions, in which the vow of stability applies not to a place or a fraternity, but to a particular person, and in which the vow of obedience is practiced not towards a superior, but towards 
unequal. In matrimony, as in holy orders, the meaning of holy, H-O-L-Y, is interpreted in the light of its homonym, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, the whole thing. You give the whole works. For only through wholeness of dedication can human life begin to approach holiness. It's only too true, really, isn't it? That's why I'd never be, uh, never be depressed or, or feel inferior if religious sort of look down their noses at married people. It's all nonsense. It's all a load of hypocrisy. The uh, married life is equally, uh, equally, maybe even more, sacrificial in its nature. And so it, it really demands, it demands a whole lot of us because, because it demands... It demands that constant submission, not just on the part of wives, but also on the part of husbands, to each other in a manner which is profoundly personal and therefore which is closer to home often than sometimes than even the life of the monastery. What about this? This, 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 is, this is interesting for... This is, this is interesting from... It's this unrelenting personalness, this extremity of intimacy, which is the greatest blessing of marriage, but it's also its greatest point of stress. Everything in life is a two-edged sword, isn't it? Even the best things in life. For there is one underlying law which seems to be deeply encrusted in human nature, and which probably bears more responsibility than any other single factor for the difficulties experienced in marriage, and not only in marriage, but in life in general. And this is it. This law says quite simply that people will much more readily submit themselves to an impersonal authority than to a personal one. For example... A man seeking good advice will be more likely to follow the advice contained in a book of his own choosing rather than be offered face-to-face advice by a trusted friend. Or again, a man may docilely comply with all sorts of humiliating conditions at work from his company but will bitterly resent one unjust word spoken by his boss. Boss and company are perceived to be two qualitatively different embodiments of authority. What is important is not so much the demands that are placed upon people, but the source of those demands. And a personal source is more questionable and offensive than an impersonal one. The reason for this phenomenon is not too hard to discern, for at heart, people like to think of themselves as their own boss, and an impersonal or collective authority allows them to fool themselves into believing that this is actually the case. 
When the leader is invisible, a follower may conclude that it is really himself who is calling the shots. And the cooperation which results may have more to do with sleepwalking than with any true and voluntary attitude of obedience. When the leader is visible, on the other hand, and takes the form of a fellow human being, then the very idea of obedience arouses suspicion. Outside of well-defined structures, there's little place in Western culture for the compliance of one individual with the will of another. That is not the way things work with us. And so the principle holds true in all areas of life, obviously all areas of life, that we are generally more subservient to corporate than to personal rule, to groups rather than to individual. We are more willing to obey laws than to obey people. When it comes to marriage, therefore, we are faced with a problem, for nowhere is the issue of acquiescence to the will of an other individual more germane. No compliance is more personal or more necessary than that required in marriage. There is no more intimate expression of authority in our lives and certainly none that is truer that we ourselves have given the authorization for it. That makes it, surely you get the point of this, that makes it even more difficult. Not only have you got to obey this one individual person, but you have given them the authority to boss you around. That's, wow. (laughs) That's a really hard one. Yet, for that very reason, there is no other power than that of our own spouse against which we are quicker to rebel For if we were the ones who authorised it in the beginning, then surely it ought to remain under our control. And yet, it's the essence of love to relinquish control. This is what it really means about wives being subject to their husbands. It's the essence of love to relinquish control as Jesus did when he placed himself in the hands of the Jewish and the Roman authorities. Jesus freely subjected himself. Christian love, in fact, acknowledges the only true authority that there is, the authority of God the Father, not by resisting all other authorities, but by surrendering to them. The Christian puts himself entirely into the hands of the Lord by putting himself entirely into the hands of worldly authority, for the world would have no power unless it had been given to it from above. So love lets God rule, and ultimately love gains control precisely by means of relinquishing control, by means of obedience, submission, and servitude. It's exactly the program of our Lord's life. Isn't that only too true? Christ gains control. God has gained control over our lives by the incarnation and by his passion and death, which is the ultimate expression of his losing control, insofar as God can lose control of anything. But it demonstrates the the, the essential lesson that that we've got to have. 
For anyone able to accept this strategy of Christian love, the extra demands placed upon obedience and renunciation within the context of marriage are no threat, no threat, but rather a blessing. For while the demands imposed by the world tend to hide behind cloaks of abstraction, impersonality and bureaucracy, the claims of marriage are the claims of one particular human heart over another. The special gift of marriage, in fact, is that the submissiveness asked of us is not anything alien or abstract, but rather to a person, a particular person, and not to a distant or unknown person, but one who is closest to us. And neither is our following of him to be one of blind following, but rather of love. Such obedience ought to be, ought to be the easiest of all, but instead, as we have seen, it can turn out to be the most difficult. The difficulty is not an inherent one, but one manufactured by our own willfulness, when it becomes clear under the steady eye of intimacy that what is being asked of us is nothing short of the surrender of our very will to, or rather through, another person. Many a man will surrender his whole life to alcohol, to some ideology, to money, to ambition, or to the glamour of politics, long before he would think of surrendering to his wife. The difficulty in marriage is that there is no chance or illusion that the one he is really surrendering to may be oneself. No, one's selfish willfulness has a definite opponent, an enemy with flesh and blood, with a will of his own residing under one's own roof, even sleeping in the same bed. (laughs) No escape from this relentless wearing down of our selfishness and pride. It's staggering in its uh, splendor. Well, it's staggering the idea of its splendor, isn't it? The trouble is that we've got to try to, to translate all these things into, into reality, and alas, that's another uh, suddenly gone with just these very, very few considerations. But we really have, truly have to see that, uh, I mean, a marriage is the is the sublime state, sublime, sorry, I'm always using that word, I've been told, but it doesn't change, it's really truly sublime, but it is the greatest thing in life. Except for the religious life is, in theory, a greater state of life because, of course, it's an, or it's an attempt to an approach at God more directly rather than through human beings. But it's, the religious life even is not what God intended for all of mankind. It's a particular thing, as our, Lord, as our Lord said, those who can take it, take it. But for the generality of mankind, God wills that we are to approach him direct, indirectly through becoming identified, lost, absorbed, if you like, with this other person who is our spouse. So it's 
a vocation which, like everything in life, is um, costs. Everything which, everything which is worthwhile costs something. There's absolutely nothing worthwhile or valuable which has got no price tag attached to it. And therefore, inevitably, the price tag attached is high. But also the rewards are higher, far, far higher. No cross, no crown. The crown is far greater than the cross. So let's try to constantly live in the consciousness of the magnificence of this great state to which God has called us so that by at least having a glimpse of its splendor and its majesty, its beauty, that we will be able to live up to it more generously, that we will accept our crosses more ardently, that in spite of all the, all the negative aspects of our spouse, that we will try to see beyond them, just beyond them, over and beyond them, to the person that we are really loving, the person that we are really serving, is Almighty God himself. And it's only through that way, of course, that the negative aspects of each other can be ultimately broken down. It's only when we love each other for something greater and higher, and that greater and higher thing being the very purpose and the object of all of our lives, that our love can have any true, true meaning anyway. That's why the more that we love God, the more, in fact, that we love our spouse, the more, in fact, that we love everybody else. If we love them for themselves, we love them less than would otherwise be the case. So tomorrow, maybe, we'll manage to move on a little bit further to the question of motherhood. But it's really essential to, to, to take our vocation not as a curse at all, but always to look at it in the light of a blessing. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. <clears throat> Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, Hail our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this veil of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, the eyes of mercy towards us. And after this, our exile, shown to us the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen.